0: If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, open it up to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, and the title of this sermon is Alone. Well, before launching into my introduction this morning, I want to start with a question for you. How many of you believe that within the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is less than God, or subpar, or is somehow less valuable or demeaned by God the Father? Okay, good. Glad to know that I pastor a Christian church. (laughs) Within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three fully God. None of them are subpar, less than, or less valuable. None of them are demeaned. Hold on to that thought for now. It'll be important later in our text. Now, have any of you seen the television show Alone? Last summer, a couple of you have. Last summer, our whole family got absolutely sucked into this show. Uh, They send, I I think, 10 contestants out to a remote location, and they're allowed to take a handful of items of their choosing. Each of the contestants are survivalists of some kind, able to live off the grid, so to speak, with the ingenuity of using their hand-picked items to survive. Whoever can go the longest wins half a million dollars. But here's the shocking part about it. If you've watched it, you know that most of the contestants end up tapping out not because of food, water, or shelter shortage, but because they're lonely. They miss their family, their friends, and loved ones. As the title of the show says, they're alone. No human contact. No one to share their soul with. No one but the GoPro camera and the squirrels to interact with. Humans need companionship. We weren't designed to do this life alone. In fact, a current study shows that 60% of people experiencing chronic loneliness also experience mental distress. And unfortunately, our current culture is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. According to Harvard, 36% of all Americans including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children feel, quote, serious loneliness. The Cigna group found that 57% of men and 59% of women reported being lonely. We weren't designed to do this life alone. Let's dive into our text. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 31 of chapter one, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Seven times in chapter one, God declares something good. Yet here in chapter two, we have a number of firsts. For the first time in Scripture and in the history of the world, we see God declare something not good. Look with me at the first part of verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, before we get into these words, it's important for us to acknowledge that good and not good are moral judgments. Remember what we said that the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, remember what we said that was all about. Moral autonomy, making decisions about what's good and evil, autonomously from God. So far, and this text is no different, God is the one making judgments about what's good and not good in this text. Back to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Isn't that amazing? Adam, think about this. He's literally in paradise. God has given him every tree that is good for food and pleasant to the eyes. God has given him dominion over the whole thing. He's at the top of the corporate ladder and has everything he needs. Almost. But even in perfect paradise, perfect Adam needed companionship. Do you see that? There was something that Adam was lacking that God would supply. Friends, I want us to pause here and to simply consider God's goodness. He's not aloof or unsympathetic to our needs like some distant landlord who only cares about himself. No. God recognizes man's social needs in the midst of paradise. He knows mankind inside and out. He knows what we need to flourish. He knows what Adam lacks. He knows that it's not good for him to be lacking in this area. Do you see the goodness and care of God here? But here's what I want us to see. God isn't just a God of loving thoughts. He's a God of action. He declares that it's not good for man to be alone. And what are the very next words out of his mouth? I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. Wow. Those are some bombshell words right there, are they not? For the women in the room, I wonder what you hear when you hear the word helper. Do you hear less than? Do you hear subpar? Do you hear less valuable? Maybe you think chauvinism, or that to be a helper is to be demeaned in some way. I want us to see clearly that this isn't the case at all for what the Bible teaches here. First, understand from the very beginning that woman is God's remedy to not good. Do you see that? There's some, there's incredible dignity and value and worth that she's bringing to the table. She's God's remedy to not good. Second, we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to, let the Bible define Bible words. This word, helper, are you ready for this? The word helper is used of God himself. Exodus 18, verse 4. The God of my father was my help, it says. Same word. Deuteronomy 33, 7. And this he said of Judah. Hear, O Lord, the voice of, voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. First Samuel 7, 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I could keep going on here. This same word is used for God repetitively throughout the scriptures. And each time, it's in the context of God rescuing or saving his people. For God to make woman as a helper for Adam isn't chauvinism or sexism. She isn't being devalued or demeaned. No, she's the remedy to not good. We'll learn quickly next week that God's solution to redemption the one who would ultimately crush the head of Satan and bring peace or shalom will be a seed of Eve. Simply put, without woman, there's no Jesus. And without Jesus, there's no redemption. She's not incidental to God's plan. She's not simply there to obey Adam's every whim. She's a helper. She's Co-equal in value and worth with man. She's a portrait of divine aid. Do you see the beauty in that, women? This is a role. But it's not a second-class role. The word being used to describe you is the same word used to describe God himself. And don't forget how we started this sermon. What do you think about the Holy Spirit and his role in the Trinity? Well, what's the Holy Spirit called? The helper. John 14, verse 16 and 26. Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Similarly, John 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. Here's what I want us to see. The Holy Spirit within the Trinity isn't placed in a demeaning role. He's not less than or or less worth than God the Father or God the Son. He's not God Junior. He's distinct from them for sure. But he's not lower on a hierarchy in any way. Do you see the point? Women, God has uniquely designed you for the role of helper. It's a distinct role. A, A role that isn't just interchangeable with Adam. And this role carries with it incredible dignity and worth. Woman was God's remedy to not good. Let's keep going. So we see that woman is going to be made distinct, different from Adam in some key ways. But there's more. Verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. This is another fun word or a couple of words. The literal translation here is this. Like his opposite or like opposite him. Notice that God doesn't say a helper to be used by him but a helper fit for him or a helper like his opposite in Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 28. We see this picture of him describing the doors in the inner court of the new temple. And multiple times he he notes that these doors are the same as the others that are on the opposite side facing one another. In other words, they're different But they're mirror images. They're a corresponding counterpart. And that's the point here in Genesis 2. God declares that Adam being alone is not good. Then he says, I will make him a helper who's a corresponding counterpart. And both of these truths are vital. Number one, that women are distinct. They're not the same as men. They're given a distinct role here, the role of helper, a glorious and dignified role. And second, women are distinct, but second, women are equal. They're a corresponding counterpart, like opposite him. She's going to be equal and distinctly different, bringing value to the man and to the world supplying what was lacking in Adam. Elizabeth Elliot says it this way. She says this. She says, In what sense is red equal to blue? They are equal only in the sense that both are colors in the spectrum. Apart from that, they are different. In what sense is hot equal to cold? They are both temperatures, but beyond this, it is almost meaningless to talk about equality. I love that. Her point is this, men and women are equal, equal in value and being and worth. But the beauty of God's design here comes in their distinctions. God, as the great artist, he paints with differing colors on purpose. And these differing colors aren't the result of the fall. No, These role distinctions are beautiful and purposeful. Women are equal to men and distinct in role. Men and women are complementary to one another. Woman would become the remedy to not good. Now, at this point in the story, notice this. It's only God who recognizes this. Adam still doesn't see it. He doesn't know that he needs something else. And how many of us are exactly like this? We don't even comprehend what we're missing half the time. That's Adam. He lacks something and he doesn't even know it. So what does God do? Look at verses 19 and 20. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Isn't that awesome? Again, God is so gracious to help Adam see his need. God parades these animals in front of Adam and allows him to exercise his kingly role. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want us to understand that these names that Adam is giving to each of the animals aren't just arbitrary. It wasn't like he had a stack of post-it notes and said, Zebra! Sounds like a fun name. There you go. Multiple theologians and early church fathers comment on Adam's pre-fall IQ here. I've never thought about this until this week. Before sin and before brokenness entered the world, Adam would have been the smartest man alive. Think, think of the smartest people that have, have ever walked the face of the earth. Adam had more mental capacity than them. His brain wasn't affected by the fall yet. So he's observing these animals acutely. He's not just arbitrarily making up names and slapping them on each animal randomly. He's studying each animal, and he's naming them respectively. Through the image of God in him that we talked about several weeks ago, through the image of God in him, he's naming with order and with thought and with purpose, just like God. And in this, we begin to see some of Adam's role. Remember, we learned in chapter 1 that Adam, under God, is an authoritative king in the garden. He's a vice ruler, so to speak. Well, naming is part of that. Naming is a function in the Bible of authority. I don't get to name your child why because i don't have the authority to do that that's an authority given to you and not to me wars are the same way who gets to name the battles the victors they're given the authority to name but even more importantly we see this with god himself he's the one naming everything in chapter one day night earth, sea. He has the authority to do so. And here, under the authority of God, Adam is given the authoritative task of naming the animals first. So God sets him to this task, and Adam just gets to it, studying each animal in depth, understanding them, giving them names, And in that process, it clicks for him. Each of these animals has a companion that's like its opposite, the same but different. I don't have anyone like that. Think about that. God has carefully led Adam to see what he lacked. He's alone. And here's what I want us to see. James Boyce comments that Adam's first lesson was to learn to appreciate his wife. To learn to appreciate his wife. Do you see that? Men, do you see that God has given you your wife to supply what is lacking in you? Do you appreciate her? Through this God-given exercise of naming animals, Adam realized that he was missing something. He felt a void within himself. He needed companionship. Do you appreciate the gift that God has given you in your wife? That was Adam's first lesson. I hope that we can learn that lesson even this morning. Second, I want us to see that this certainly has application for marriage, which Moses will get to by the end of this text. But what I want us to hear loud and clear is that the implications here are much, much, much broader than just marriage. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. If you're here and you're single, it can be easy to hear sermons like this and think, "Well." Am I somehow not good if I'm not married? The answer is no. While uh, I do believe the Bible holds marriage up as a beautiful and a great gift, and while uh, I do believe that the Bible holds marriage as the foundational block for societal flourishing, and while I do believe that most people should be pursuing marriage, I want to remind us that in light of all of that, or, or secondary to all of that, Jesus wasn't married, and there was nothing not good about Jesus's life. You're not less human if you're not married. Further, there will be no marriage in heaven. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30 says, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This is more broadly about companionship before it's specifically about marriage later in this text. We were designed for friendship. And I I love the title of Drew Hunter's book here. Made for friendship. The relationship that halves our sorrows and doubles our joy. Halves our sorrows and doubles our joy. We were made for friendship. Friendship. It's wired in us by God himself. Adam observed all of these animals. and He quickly realized that he didn't have anyone that he could share his soul with. Listen, dogs are great. And on the show alone that I was talking about earlier, one guy tries to strike up a friendship with a squirrel. But it just doesn't work. He eventually has to kill the squirrel for food. We need companionship. We need fellowship with other human beings who are like us. We need others we can share our souls with. This is part of God's image in us. God is a plurality the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in relationship with one another in perfect fellowship. We were designed for that, and it was not good for man to live alone in isolation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, he writes this. He writes, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. We were not meant to be alone. So God has declared Adam's need. He's spoken what he intends to do about it. He's led Adam to see his need. And now, God's going to meet Adam's need. He's going to provide what's lacking. And that's important, by the way. God doesn't say, Adam, unfortunately, you lack something. Now go out and get it. Not at all. He says, you're lacking something. And I'll provide it. Look at verses 21 and 22. This is glorious. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. First, notice that Adam experiences a divinely induced sleep here. Wouldn't that be amazing? God does this both when making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and apparently with the prophet Jonah when he's in the hull of the ship. Andrew Bonner here makes a connection here between this scene and the resurrection of Christ birthing the church. Here's what he writes. He says, there must be sleep in the first Adam before God can take out of him the ordained spouse. And there must be death in the second Adam, meaning Jesus before God can take out of him, the chosen bride. I'm not too sure about that connection, but it's beautiful nonetheless. So Adam is asleep. And while he's asleep, God takes one of his ribs to make a woman. Adam is made from the dust. Eve is made from Adam. Neither is made ex nihilo or from nothing she's made from man same bone same flesh same dna she's made of the same stuff and that's the point there's real equality here both are made in the image of god but why adam's rib god could have done this any way he wanted why adam's rib specifically Uh, The Puritan Matthew Henry says it so beautifully. He says this, he says, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that awesome? If you can't see it already, there's an equality, there's a dignity, there's a beautiful purpose in the creation of woman. And once again, there's Christological significance here. See this. We all come from Adam. We'll get more into this the next couple of weeks, but Adam is our federal head. We're all related to him in several ways. But here, we're meant to see that new life came from one man, Adam. And the same is true of Christ, the second and better Adam. New life, new birth can only come from him. This is a spiritual reality. You can only receive new life from Christ, the second Adam. He's the source of spiritual life for all who repent and believe. And if you want to know more what it means to follow Christ and receive new life, after the service is over, Ben and I are going to be standing out here at this black table outside. And we would love to tell you more and just talk to you about what it means to have new life out of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And look, look what God does next. After making the woman from Adam's rib, verse 22 In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Like a father walking his daughter down the aisle, God brings woman to the man. I'm sure many of you have already done this in here, but I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. I'm not ready for that just yet. But isn't that beautiful? God brings her to the man, to present her as his remedy to not good. And look at Adam's response here. These are the first human words of scripture, by the way. And it's poetry again. He erupts in song. Verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do you see the delight that he has in his bride here? Again, the story breaks from narrative to poetry. Adam's excited. He's delighted in the beautiful, wonderful gift that God has given him in woman. I know that I keep on doing this, but I'm going to do it again at least once more. Pull back on this scene and consider the comparison of Adam to his bride And Christ to his bride, the church. Adam delighted in his bride. And Christ delights in the church, his bride. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 29. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her Friends, the bride of Christ, the church, isn't to be spit upon, despised, or cast aside as worthless. Christ loves, cherishes, delights in his bride, the church. Do you, on both fronts, as Christians, do you love, cherish, and delight in the church? Not the organization, the people. Or do you see her as unimportant and unnecessary? I don't need the church. I'll just listen to a podcast or watch my favorite preacher on TV. The church is so flawed, and frankly, I've been burned too many times. The church is behind the times. I don't need her. Christians, Christ loves Cherishes and delights in his bride, the church. Let that sink in. Second, husbands, do you delight in your wife, who's God's glorious gift to you? Learn from Adam here. Consider your lack. Consider all the ways that she's beautiful and a complimentary gift to you as God's aid and helper. Cherish her, love her, delight in her. One other important truth to notice here is this. What does Adam do right in the middle of verse 23? He calls her woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. He names her. He's exercising his God-given authority. He's fulfilling his God-given role. Do you see that? Each time, it's both and. There's equality. Bone of bone, flesh and flesh. And, alongside equality, there's role distinction. He's exercising authority through naming. Without going into great detail here, This is what we believe as a church. We're what's called complementarian. And while there are some who give a bad name to that and end up being more authoritarian than complementarian, I don't actually mind that label, complementarian. A complementarian believes that men and women, by God's design, complement one another. I'll say that again. A complementarian believes that men and women, by God's design, complement one another. That God has gloriously made us equal in value and being and worth, yet purposefully distinct in role. And I'll just add, any church that's actually complementarian will value women. They'll be flourishing and not oppressed. A church where women are are floundering and oppressed isn't complementarian. A truly complementarian church should lead to women being valued, protected, and flourishing. From the very beginning, this was God's plan for man and for woman. Man was lacking something that woman supplied, and vice versa. Man and woman are not interchangeable or disposable. Each brings something different to the table in God's economy. It's right here in the garden from the very beginning of our creation. And and once she's there, God is able to say the very good of day six. Now, all of that, all of that happens in the garden, And then Moses zooms out to his current time and place, to the people of God who had just been rescued out of Egypt. And he writes verses 24 and 25. He says, therefore, so in light of all that he's just said about man and woman, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Moses says, everything I just told you about the creation of Eve makes marriage a big deal. I'm going to apply these broad truths, Moses says, specifically to marriage. And then he explains to us some big details of what marriage entails. Look at this. First, leaving. A man shall leave his father and mother. While this may include physically moving across town or across the country or across the globe, depending on your situation, I want us to see that this is more about loyalty and intimacy. Kent Hughes comments that neither before Moses nor after Moses was it ever the custom for a man to leave his father and mother when he took a wife. It just was not done. In fact, the custom was for a man to marry and remain in his father's household, as did Jacob's son who remained with him, though they founded their own families and fortunes. Rather, custom called for the wife to join the family of her husband. In other words, this marital command isn't primarily about physical separation, though it can be that. It's more about shifting your primary loyalties. From your family of origin to your wife or husband, leaving. Second, cleaving. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The sense of this phrase is and sticks to his wife. It's the same language that is used repetitively in the Bible to call Israel to stick to the Lord in covenant relationship. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. It says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by, the, by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So we're called to leave father and mother and to stick to our wives or husbands in faithful covenant relationship. Third, and finally, we're to become one flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. While this isn't less than sexual union, it is that... It's so much more. One flesh expresses the deepest of intimacy between a man and a woman, where everything is shared. You're one in all ways without losing your own identity. A man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast, shall become one flesh. In verse 25, Moses closes with, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're going to be dealing with this issue of nakedness and shame more in chapter 3. But for now, we should see that they're both without sin. They're able to be fully open with God and with one another. This is a pure portrait of marriage in a permanent covenant relationship. Now, it has to be said as clearly as I can say it here. Biblical marriage, marriage that God approves of and leads to flourishing, is between one man and one woman. Here and all over the Bible. No bestiality, no polygamy, no incest, promiscuity, or premarital sex, or homosexuality. All of it is sin and outside of God's good design for marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman till death do us part. Second, gender is fixed. We dealt with this in chapter one, but I'll say it again. God assigns gender. He doesn't make mistakes. And God's gender assignment is a good gift. He makes men and women equal and purposefully distinct. So, in all of these things, here's the question for us Will we trust God's Word? Will we trust God's Word? Will we trust God to say what's good and not good? Or will we, will we grasp at the tree yet again, striving for our own moral autonomy? Friends, this isn't about politics. It's about God's word and if we trust it or not. I'll go a step further. It's about God himself and if we trust his person or not. Our culture, our culture's all out assault on marriage and sexuality is an assault on God Himself. It's an assault on the gospel. Why? Because covenant marriage is a portrait of Christ and of the church. Christ as the perfect husband. He came and He laid down His life for the church, His bride. He died on the cross to save ruined sinners. He loved her with a covenant love that was unconditional and never-ending. You see, we sang about this earlier. We just talked about this in the text, that that this this holding fast is about us sticking to God. But that's the beautiful thing, that we what we sang is true, that he holds fast to us, that he grips on to us because of the gospel. This thing called marriage in the text Is so serious because it displays God and His love for His people. That's why it's so serious when so called churches start to call evil good and good evil by affirming. They've stopped trusting God and they've given up on the gospel itself. No fault divorce, homosexuality, and the transgender movement are all an affront to God and His gospel. But it's not that that any of these things are are somehow good things that God's just keeping from us. No. They're all distortions of God's good gifts. They take what God has said is good. And they undercut it at the knees. Marriage between one man and one woman. with, With the man leaning hard into the authoritative headship role that God designed him for. And the woman leaning hard into the helping role that God designed her for. Both glorious and complementary, Leaving, cleaving, one flesh, covenantal relationship. It's an amazing gift from God. That God is using to display his glory all over the world. And so the question is, do we trust him in this? Or do we think we know better than God? Let's pray.